Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I am just thrilled to have Paul Williams here today. If you don't know his name, that means you're maybe younger than I am. But Paul Williams, one of the great songwriters and performers and artists of uh, the period that I've been walking the earth. Uh, some of the songs that that he wrote are Randy Days and Mondays, We've Only Just Begun, and Rainbow Connection, which we're going to talk about a bit. And then, Paul, I don't, I don't know if you've done any research or, uh, on me at all, but I have an amazing story, man, about my childhood, as everybody does who talks to you. But I have a very personal one, which is when I was eight years old, my dad took me on the first business trip that he was going to ever take me on. And we went to California and, and he, he told me, um, I'm going to take you to somebody's house and you need to be, I was an ADHD kid and sometimes, you know, I had a hard time keeping it together. And he was like, we're going to go to somebody's house and I need you to really be uh, on your A game, polite, kind, easy, because this person is a musical artist and they're very famous. And uh, we went over to Barbara Streisand's house and she was lovely to me. And Jason was there and, and Barbara and, uh, cause my dad was working with her on, on records and, uh, and Barbara said, I just wrote a melody that I want to play you guys. And it's like one of the most distinct memories of my whole childhood, Paul, is she took an acoustic out. And I'm sure you know and remember, she wasn't really a guitar player. And she basically just barely fingered the chords and hummed the melody to Evergreen. And as she played that melody to Evergreen for us as an eight-year-old, hearing that voice come out of her, it was a defining moment of seeing, so and then to hear the song later. And you know, my dad didn't work on the record, um, but even he was, uh, I remember we were both so blown away. And then when I heard what you did, uh, even as a child, it had such a heavy impact on me. And uh, and 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 just is is forever kind of imprinted. So uh, thanks for that. And I, I, I have to ask what it was like for you well, first of all, this moment, how about the fact that, you know, that in my entire life, I finally met somebody that had the same experience with Barbara that I did because she, you know, I mean, <laughs> what are the odds, you know, and what took you so long, bro? <laughs> you know, and it's interesting because I have two thoughts that are immediate. My first thought was, this is amazing that you, that you experienced what I experienced and the, you described it as I described it, you know, that, you know, we basically had, I think, seven or eight weeks to get an entire score together. And so we were breakneck speed, whatever. And and so we're at the end of a, out of a, a you know, I, I'd asked Kenny Asher to come in and write most of the songs with me. He was a beautiful composer, and I, and, and I thought it could be the right addition. We had, uh, uh, so at, at any rate, so so we, we'd done the, our, our meeting with Kenny and, and, Barbara and myself gone through whatever we we're going through. And as we were getting ready to leave, Barbara said, oh, I want to play you something. Can, oh. can you do anything with this? And the way I describe it is that she was just learning to play guitar. So she's struggling for the chords. So what I get is, ba 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 Look for the chord. Ba-ba-da-da-dee-da-da-da. Look for the chord and stretch <laughs> And it's like, so I'm sitting there and I'm listening to this, like a line at a time, pause to look for a chord, a line at a time. 
but and it, each line gets better and more beautiful. And I, she said, "Is that any good?" I said, "That's your love theme." I said, "I think that's just right, right out your love theme." You know, the other thing that is interesting about the moment for the moment for me is that that moment, that moment has remained the same. My perception of what the entire experience with Barbara was like, which is kind of a, you know, I was a bit of a flippant little ass at the time, you know, and I mean. And and was very you know working very hard to not look like I was impressed with Barbara Streisand. Now it is you know how many years later, fifty years later, practically whatever. It's, or, and 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 I look back at that experience and I went first of all she was went out of her way to make sure I was comfortable. I mean yes. I was I was drinking at the time seriously. She was so gracious. I'm, She's such a gracious person, which people don't understand how gracious she is yeah. interpersonally like that. Yeah. Yes. Well, when you take, when you drain about a third of my, or how much, or however much it's meant, about a third of my ego out of my, my, you know, my perception, I see what she was like, and it's, it's much, much more generous and, and, and inspired. Well, yeah, it was an incredible thing because my, my dad, you know, as a publisher, and you guys didn't work together, but I know you, you know, he's Charles Koppelman. I'm sure you guys have met. Yeah, 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 yeah. Along, along the way, and, and. uh, but, you know, as a publisher, the last thing he wants to do is is probably say that some song he's not going to own is the one that they should make the love theme. But I remember her playing it, the melody, and him saying, yep, that's the one. That's it. Like, he, it was so... And then you took it and elevated it, man. And did you feel um, pressure in taking that on at that, at that moment? I mean, we're going to talk about who you were in the culture then. But even for someone who had the position, the lofty place you did in the culture at that moment, I imagine being handed something like that came with um, a certain heaviness because she gave you something yeah. that called you to be at your best in a way. That would have been absolutely the, the natural uh, you know, thing to experience. That would have been the, you know, the, the healthy human response. To that. <laughs> uh, you have to understand that, that I was you know, living better through chemistry in those days. And, right. And, so you know my 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 medicine was was the drugs and alcohol, which which really got bad in the eighties. I will say that that you know that I was still enough in my body to you know every now and then I'd get exhausted or, or go to sleep and wake up and not and not be you know loaded and and would write something that w- that people would respond to because when I wasn't loaded I was I was exper- I was experiencing music through the center of my chest as opposed to my head. And what you're talking about is is a horrific trap that we all that we all fall into, is that one where it's like, okay, uh, 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 this I've got to be my best. So you throw a ton of energy into writing from here, to trying to be clever instead of honest. And what happened? I mean, you're, you know, you rewrite, you you you, know, you do all this stuff as well. You know that when you get out of the way and and when you let yourself, you know, experience it. And and then express it in a way. That, I mean, like the reason I had had songs that were hit, like all that stuff with the Carpenters, is I wasn't sophisticated to write better. I mean, I, I was sophisticated enough to write clever. I mean, so I wrote just this is what I'm feeling, just dumb. You know, I won't last today without you. Is not a healthy thought. Let's, <laughs> you know, you it's the world. These are these are codependent anthems. I've called them for years. You know, but. But yeah, it's really, first of all, it's a pleasure to, to say hi and, and spend this time with you. Um, 
but I never expected <laughs> you to open it with that. That's absolutely amazing. Well, yeah, how could you expect that? Because, and you, you know, you don't carry so much from when you're seven, eight years old, but you can imagine that as an eight-year-old looking at all that, uh, at the car- at that house on Carrollwood, uh, that's where we were. And, and the, taking all that in and then having that moment of that voice in front of you. You know what I remember? What I remember about that house is that she collected art glass, you know, so it was like huge gullets and everything. And of course, I, you know, I would adopt any part of the personality, you know, I, I sometimes called stealing, you know, so I immediately decided I was going to start collecting art glass. And it was like incredibly expensive. And I had a few little pieces and all. And so I was talking to some friends recently. I realized that what I was doing was as far away from my own natural taste. I mean, my taste is more sad clown paintings, you know, sad Sad clown paintings on velvet, if possible. But. I don't want to jump ahead, but what I had written down was I was I've been giving a lot of thought to who you were in the culture during my childhood because you were as famous as a human being could be, Paul, as you know. And it's a weird thing now, right? You're you're my dad's age. You guys are just a few uh, months apart, and the the culture was so different in the 70s and, and early 80s and the kind of fame only like John Denver was as famous as you in the same way at that time but I was thinking about the reaction I had to you as a kid and because I'm a writer I was always kind of sensitive and the thing that I was sensitive to was and it and it always kind of freaked me out man was other than a, very rarely when you were with Johnny you just didn't seem comfortable in your own skin a lot of the time you're very perceptive for that at, at that age. I could feel it. It was just a feeling when I was 10, 11 years old. I would watch you and I'd be like, "That there's something. I wouldn't have had the words that wasn't unified about this genius because there was no doubt you're a genius and you were a genius then. But there was something so disconnected and and it would it it bothered me as as a kid. And I watched the documentary recently and. I saw that you worked to unify it, that I was right about that feeling yeah. that I had. And I, so I guess I just want to ask you, like, because for humans in our everyday life, that disconnection is so difficult. You were dealing with that on, you know, on camera every day. Uh, did it, were you aware of this, this thing? Like you just said, stealing. I get what that was. How did you manage it on a day-to-day basis? Was it just by getting fucked up? Well, when I got sober, I started the work. Uh, I mean, you know, when I got sober, I I started the work, you know, uh, I had my last drink September 21st, 1989. I took a Valium March 14th that belonged to my girlfriend, argued with myself about it three years and eventually changed my date to March 15th, 1990. And I've been sober since. And everything that is that 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 I'm absolutely sure of that I would now, you know, would would spout and say that incidentally, what you're experiencing right now is wisdom came after I put the plug in the jug uh, and, and also came with a flood of gratitude, which you did not, would not see me experience, really expressing back in the day when, the, when you're talking about when I became much better at showing off than showing up. And, and, and it was such a whirlwind, which, you know, my, my, when I met my wife, she's, you know, I, I don't know when she said it, but we, we've been together since 2003. And she was, we were talking one day and she said, you know what, she's one of the funniest things you ever said. She's the, the, that I just, I knew what you meant, but it was still funny, but, but it was, it seemed important. Is once on Carson, you described yourself as a combination of, uh, 
uh, of Donny Osmond and Oscar Levant. <laughs> uh, and I went, with the, oh, I said, did I? And then I remembered saying it. When I was like 14, 13, my, my dad was, was killed in a car wreck and I was shipped yeah. off to live with an aunt and uncle in Long Beach, California. So there was a local Oscar Levant television, like on you know, a local station, KGTV or, or, or KTLA, whatever, out here on the West Coast. And I used to watch Oscar Levant and I was fascinated to the point I didn't want to blink. He did enough blinking for everybody, of course, but, but he just, I don't know if you remember him or have a, any him at all. Do you, you know who he is? No. No, I just the oh, name from, but I don't know. I can't picture him. I can't draw him into my head. You ever see an American in Paris with, you know, of course. Kelly? Yes, of remember course. Remember the piano player? They were blinking all yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah. I know exactly who you mean. Yes, 100%. Now you know exactly who I mean. He was a, a world, world class, world famous, uh, world class piano player. Uh, uh, decided that, that there was only room for one genius composer in, in a lifetime, and, and it was Gershwin. So he devoted himself to Gersh, to George Gershwin. They were great friends. He, uh, he would show up at George Gershwin's house and, and stay there for seven months. And then he'd get up at the end of a meal and say, I'm sorry, I hate to eat and run, but he'd leave. Oh, that's hilarious. Uh, he was a major drug addict, major, major drug addict and a brilliant mind. Um, and I'm like 13 or 14 and I'm watching this man and I don't get it, but, but the, the, the connectedness, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the bizarre connection there was something in, in, and I think in both personalities is we were really good at, we found a really good and sometimes really fun way to not have to be ourselves. Yes. The hiding. And it, I, I understand that, um, completely. My, my wife's a filmmaker, Paul, and, and she makes these novels. She makes very dark. She's the least uh, sentimental person in, the, in her work. And uh, I mean, no sentiment. Like it's the darkest, driest shit you've ever watched. But, uh, but I knew what would happen. I, I walked downstairs and, um, and a lot of it's about depression and substance stuff. In it. But I walked downstairs a few minutes ago and I said, hey, about to interview Paul Williams. And she said, oh, cool. I said, you know, he wrote uh, Rainbow Connection. And she started weeping. Uh, no bullshit. She literally teach. She just started weeping at the table. She goes, "You're gonna talk to the person who wrote Rainbow Connection," and I said, "Yeah, hun." And she just so aim come in. So she has some questions for you. And because she's never the po- ever been interested in any guest I've had on the show, I'm gonna let her say hi to you. So Amy Koppelman. Amy. It's Paul Williams. What a treat! Thank you. You know what? Why don't you let Amy take over the rest of the time? I mean, it was- <laughs> she should. She's better to talk to. Uh, I, 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 I just wanted to um, say thank you. I, I can't, I'm sorry for crying, but you wrote that song. I looked just now when I was 10 years old. So since I was a little girl, now I'm 51. So for 41 years, I've been able to turn on that song for hope. And I have listened to it more this year, probably than I listened to it my entire life, but I've listened to it every year my whole life from when i had it on a record on a record player till you know older um with both of my children and um so i just wanted to thank you because you've given all of us that like we got to grow up in a world as scary and frightening as it's always been being able to listen to that and know that like 
Kermit understood us even if we had no one to play with at recess. So, yeah. and even if yeah. our parents were yeah. fighting and- Can, and can, I, can I tell you how, what I love about the song? I mean, yes. it's just, I, this is what's amazing about the song. Song, I did not write the song. The song wrote me and Kenny Asher. Kenny Asher is composer. I'm, I'm the lyricist, but we go kind of back and forth. But it was, for us, it was a huge deal to get a chance to write Kermit's I Am song at the beginning of the Muppet movie. It was a big deal. The first move, first feature with the Muppets. And the, the song that set the bar, what we wanted to try to write was, was something that was as meaningful as when you wish upon a star. Because when Pinocchio you know, is, is there and, and Jiminy Cricket climbs up into the window, takes his hat off and goes, when you wish upon a star. I mean, it's like if it does not open up your heart, there's something wrong with you. Then you belong in a documentary about serial killers. It's just like that's that's just the most amazing moment. This line I wanted to say to you that kills me every time um, as a writer is when you wrote, um, so we've been told and some uh, sorry, who said that every wish would be heard and answered when wished on the morning star? Somebody thought of that and someone believed it. Look what it's done so far. And I that, just, that, as that a writer, total, you can't get better than that. No, but you know what? That's also the, that's, that's essentially is my, totally my philosophy. I believe we're powerful. I believe that thoughts and words become things that what we dwell on, we create, you know, but we still need to start out with Kenny and I writing this song, and this is going to take uh, probably two minutes. Talk for two minutes. We're just going to be quiet. Uh, Kenny and I sit down to write the song, you know, and so we start out. It's like I asked, asked Jim, walk, walking Jim to my, to my car from my house, to his car from my house. Uh, I said, Jim, you know, these are really important songs, and we're going to let you hear them along the way because we don't want to, you know, this is important. So I don't want to get off on the wrong foot. And he said, oh, Paul, I'll hear them in the studio. I said, sir, <laughs> I mean, this was new behavior for me, that somebody that trusted their choice that much that he would hear it when we're recording. So it's in our, in our lap. So I said, and as he's leaving, I said, what, okay, we, we find Kermit and he's, where is he? He's in the swamp. Okay, gotcha. What is he doing? He thought for a minute and he said, playing a banjo, click, boom. <laughs> And so, all right, boom, ba -doo, ba -doo, there's a banjo. So Kenny and I start, why are there so many songs about rainbows and what's on the other side? Rainbows are visions, but only illusions and rainbows have nothing to hide. And Kenny and I looked at each other and went, oh, Jesus. What, what, we have just painted ourselves into the most unpleasant corner. We just denied the, you know, the absolute, you know, the, every magical element in a rainbow we just denied. So we've been told and some choose to believe it was the escape to the that was the solution to the mistake to the problem. And here's what it did. It gave you the song and it turned because Kermit became a member of the audience with you. And with me when I hear it, I mean, if it's like so we've been told now all of a sudden Kermit is not standing there leaning on the podium or the lectern. Kermit is sitting in the audience with you and he goes, so we've been told and some choose to believe it. I know the wrong, wait and see, someday we'll find it. It's a quest, you know, it's a spiritual journey, not a spiritual arrival. Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers and me. So far, I haven't described anything that I did. I'm just describing things that have been done to me in the creation of this song. And it goes on and on like that. And my favorite line, maybe that I ever wrote in the song 
is, is who said that every wish would be heard and answered if wished on the morning star. Somebody thought of that, someone believed it. Look what it's done so far. And the lesson in that for anybody here, including you probably, do you have children? Yeah. Okay, with your children, is to empower them in a moment like that. To say, you know, like if you, if you know, if you know, somebody thought of that and someone believed it, your mom, your dad, those are the, usually the places, that, in a lot of homes, those are the last places that they get that they're told that. But in what we do collectively for a living, I think we have, a, you have a better shot of hearing that from your parents than, than you do, you know, from a frog on a screen. But what you just, what you shared with me, Amy, is just, I mean, I, I could cry. It ab- absolutely. And the great thing about my life is, is that I managed to screw it up bad enough to find a new way to live. And then I'm alive and I'm, and like, I'm 80 years old and I'm 30 years sober. And all of a sudden, there are guys like Edgar Wright or, you know, or, or, or Gustavo Santaolalla or, or whatever, who are, remember me then, and they're giving me a chance to work now. So I have a really meaningful, busy life today because I had the breakdown and the loss after the, the work. Mm-hmm. And again, it separates me. My rainbow connection is, is, is a moment like this and all. My connection was always through music. Now I get to have a connection like this, and that's the two minutes. So, and well, I'm this a- is what I was going to ask. Go ahead. I, I, just, yeah, cause I, I had two questions that I wanted to ask you. Um, one was about that turn in the song, because when you read the lyrics, the way the lyrics are broken, as you know, when you read it like a poem, it interrupts that thought. And for years, it got me so confused, because I was like, but that's not what this song means. And I was like, okay, so those first those first two lines really belong to, I, I wanted to ask you if I was right in my interpretation. So that means I was, so that's good. But then also the other question I wanted to ask you, cause um, this movie I just did, and it's all about hope and stars. That's why I listened to this song so many times when I was making it. I actually only have two songs in the movie. Um, and one is a Sesame Street song, but I, the other question I wanted to ask you, um, because this is a question I always had wanted to ask Jim Henson, if I could ask somebody like you and him, your heart is, is sorry, how, how did your, your heart like survive this world with so many mean people who do so many mean things? Because the other part of the line that you wrote is when you think about all the mean things that people tell their children and their children believe it about the world and about other people, like how do you overcome like the equal and opposite, you know, power of that? And then how does somebody like you who obviously sees everything, how were you able to endure? Because it has to have been so painful to have tentacles like that everywhere. Two words, magical thinking. All <laughs> you know, it's like over the last four years, I have used that magical thinking day and, and yes. day, you know. Right. Yeah. So it's a will, but that means so it's willfully deciding to believe in the possibility of good. Something happened to me, uh, probably, I, I mean, it may, may have been pre verbal. I don't know when it happened, but I mean, you know, like when I was like nine years old, they gave me shots to make me grow. Yeah. Instead, it, it, it closes off the bones. You stop growing. But I also at like nine years old, they gave me shots of male hormones. So all of a sudden, I'm in puberty, you know, at right. like age nine. 
you know, it's not going to last because as soon as my folks realize that I keep, I have no interest in my toy chest, but my Aunt Edna's chest, I'm, I'm wildly interested in. They, they say, we've got to get him off these hormones. This is terrible. Right. What it did is it screwed up my, my body clock. So I didn't actually hit puberty until I was out of high school. So I was, I have been an absolute outsider of, you know, for most of, of my life up until the point where I started performing and I felt like one of the guys. Like what you saw with, you know, with that, 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 that experience with, with Carson was, was kind of come, you know, let's get, let's get up here and show off whatever like that. But the fact is there was also an element that, that I didn't go, you know, when I was, you know, when I was hanging with, with Robert Mitchum, who was a neighbor, I didn't feel like, Oh my God, I'm this little guy and I'm hanging with Robert Mitchum not because I'm a big star. Now I thought I'm hanging with Robert Mitchum that made me feel like I was normal. I came right. up to that. I didn't come up to be in this stuff. So because I didn't come up to uh, like this, I'm, you know, I'm a big deal and you should know. I think that, that people that saw me, what they felt and what they connected with was something straight across. When I watch the documentary, Paul, and all those people start weeping when they meet you, when they hear your music, like, and across, right, it's some younger people, some older people, but, but the reaction <laughs> You know, I've, I've been in a lot of Dillinger. I've been around a lot of people who wrote a lot of meaningful songs. But your songs break people apart. And they, I just have to know, what does it feel like to you when people literally just, when they hear it, right? They meet you, they're calm. They hear that you wrote some of those songs and they literally break down like Amy just did. But I saw a hundred people do it on that documentary and they weren't faking it. I don't think it's breaking apart. The reason that I, and then I'll leave so I don't keep interrupting, but... It's because that person made you feel whole. So then it's like you have this relief. Yeah. And then that makes you feel like that's what breaks you apart. But, yeah, but from his perspective, I think that's true. But from your perspective, like, what is it? What is that? Well, I'm moved. Whether I write, you know, a lot of times I write words to somebody else's music. Yes. And, all, and what happens is I am, I hear a certain kind of truth for me in the song, you know. And so... Uh. And so I, you know, when I was loaded, I would write these incredibly heady, brilliant lyrics and all like that that nobody would ever listen to. There's drawers right. full of them everywhere I've lived in my life. You know, there are drawers full. Of, this is this is like oh my my God. You know, the you know the wisdom and the intellect is aren't you? Why aren't you listening to this all the way through? Because there's no there's no me in it. There's who I want. Think I want you to be. Yes. Want me to be. How but hard is it to learn as an artist? So this feels incredibly crucial to me. I mean, how, how hard is it to learn that thing, to not try to be impressive in the work, to not try to come from your head, but to just actually let the thing get cracked open? Was that a conscious journey for you? No. No, not. I mean, I mean, I was five years sober when I looked at my childhood and I went, oh, my God, this like dick. <laughs> dick. <laughs> Like, yes. you know, but I didn't feel it at the time. What happens is uh, somewhere in the writing of the pro process of writing songs, you know, writing words to somebody else's music or writing words of music myself and to sit down to, to write, to write for like Scrooge. I tell the story a lot about, you know, the first thing I did after I got sober was write the songs for the Muppet Christmas Carol. I'm writing the song for Scrooge. Right. Now I understand that. Look how the universe just lined up. This skin flint, this this unfeeling creature who is addicted to finance, 
Yes. Is suddenly having a spiritual awakening and, and coming back to the place where he is in touch with the world around him and humanity. He's having a spiritual awakening. I am in the midst of a spiritual awakening. I'm one year sober. I mean, I want to stop people on the street and just kiss them and go, oh my God, we're both people. Isn't that fantastic? You know, it's just, it's just that bad or that wonderful, I should say. Yeah. So I go off to write, I go off to write this song for Scrooge. And I took a Lawrence Block novel with me. I went and I, I love Lawrence Block. Do you know he's my guy? We're we're de- one of my he's we're dear 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 friends. You're joking. Oh, do you know? No, how much I, I wrote the introduction. Do you know how what Matt? Do you know what Matt Scudder did to an early, my early sobriety? No, you don't understand how mind blown I am right now. I mean, Matt well, Scudder, I've given well, it to so many alcoholics. Well, you know, he just you know, it's like Dave Robichaux. You know, it's like. You does, know, does, wait, does Larry know that he had an influence on you? Have you? Oh, I, I think so. Along the way, we, you know, we we met. You know, I I think. I'm sorry, I'm, that just blew my mind. I remember when we met, but I I think it was a brief a brief meeting. Uh, I was friends with Hal Ashby. Sure, and, of course, and, you know, he made eight million ways Hal to Ashby, die. Yeah, what Hal did was a million ways to die. Which you know, if they had let him have that picture all the way through, imagine what it would have been like. Yes. But they took it away from him and all. But, 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 but so wait, so you had the Lawrence Block book with you. Okay, I go out and I, and I sit down and I talk to the big amigo. I mean, I pray about everything. And you know, after you get sober, you realize this stuff works. You know, I got so I, I called a doctor in a blackout because a dr- bunch of drunks in Oklahoma City prayed for me. They got a prayer circle together. And when they saw me have a meltdown and, and, and I went back to L.A. and they all prayed for me to get sober. And a week later in a blackout, I called a doctor. So that, that's it. There's, there's no more proof that I need. The spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. That's living it when you get so messed up people pray for you and it works boom you've learned everything you need to know about that so i go into this i go into this little park in brentwood uh and i take my tape recorder and i go okay big amigo we have we have a song here where you're going to see you you see a, uh, a door open and just the feet come out walking through the mud and as this this and it's Scrooge. And as Scrooge goes by, all these little creatures, they seem to get colder. So I had read the book. I had read the screenplay. I knew what it was supposed to be. And then I just let it go. Let me know when you have an idea. I start reading which, whichever Lawrence Block novel I was reading. And totally, I'm not sort of reading or whatever. I'm When it's Lawrence Block, when I start reading, I'm reading. And I'm there. And all of a sudden, about three pages in, I put it down. And I went, wait a minute. He's walking. When a cold wind blows, it chills you, chills you to the bone. But there's nothing in nature that freezes your heart like years of being alone. Damn it, that's really good. You You know, it paints you with indifference like a lady paints with a rouge. And the worst of the worst, the most hated and cursed. Is the one that they call Screw Joe. There goes Mr. Hump. I, I can't write it down. I, thank God I've got a tape recorder because I cannot write it down that fast. What am I experiencing? I'm experiencing the full solid impact and, and the discipline of my unconscious. Yes. Which we sometimes call the muse. And there's a, there's a wonderful guy on the ASCAP board, you know, named Richard Bellis. Richard Bellis says, is, you know, for years you thought you were procrastinating. You weren't procrastinating. You were percolating, Polly. I love it. You were percolating. Once your unconscious has a sense of it's like anybody that's, a, that's listening to your podcast right now that is not a writer. 
they can relate to this. You're trying to remember somebody's name and you've known him for your entire life. And Martha, this is ridiculous. Like, you know, I mean, he's the guy where he was in the movie with someone. And then in the middle of the night, you sit up in bed and you go, Arthur Honeycutt. Or, you know, Robert Duvall or whatever. It's just, and the thing is, all that time, you weren't thinking about that. You were washing your car or, you know, stepping in the shower or something. When you remember that your unconscious continued to look through the, the, the Rolodex, no, the so internal powerful. Rolodex. I can't believe that, all tur- that that thing tumbled out of you in a torrent like that. I mean, it, it, um, you know, it's what Hemingway always talked about, right? He would d- discipline himself not to think about the writing when he put the book down and then not think about it again until he showed up the next day and let the... Let yeah. the subconscious yeah. mind work. Yeah. I mean, have you? Did you read Larry Block's his newest novel? It's not a scudder. Uh, it's called Dead Girl Blues, and it's his masterpiece. It's he, a masterpiece. I he have wrote it. He wrote it at eighty-two years old, and I swear to you, Paul, it is a. It's his masterpiece. It's incredibly dark, brutal, but it is a true masterpiece of work. That that Larry had told me. He said, uh, "I'm done. I'm not writing anymore." And then he. I'm often the first reader of his work other than oh, that's his wife. This, this is amazing. Yeah. So he, he wrote me and he said, Hey, I just finished something. Do you want to read it? I said, you said you weren't writing anymore. Cause he always says it. And he goes, yeah, but I'm going to send it to you. And, um, and he sends this thing to me and I, I read it in the night and he was worried about it. And you'll see why when you read it. Cause it's very, very, very fucked up. And I said, Larry, you, you did the thing and, uh, you got to put this out. He said, I, he said, I, you think it's okay to put out and, 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 uh, and when you read it, you won't believe what he did because it starts in such a dark place, Paul, where it seems like, talk about painting yourself into a corner. It seems impossible. And then what well, he does about what's possible for humanity. Uh, this is the book he's going to be remembered by, I think, even more than the Scudders, even though I've given the Scudder books to so many people who want to quit drinking, man. I'm not an alcoholic, but I've taken lots of people to meetings. And I, and, and I usually use those books. And I'm sorry I freaked out when you said his name, but... Um, it's he's so Im- deeply important to to me. Uh, I mean, Amy knows I, it's he's just so important to me. Well, the the thing that that I would love for him to know is that when I wasn't sure where I belong, I knew that when I walked first time I went to one of those that in that organization that we don't mention at a public yes. level that saved my life. You know, I felt absolutely like that was just that was I was the center of the herd from day one. I loved it. I loved it. All I wanted to do was be around other recovering alcoholics, and and uh, uh, and it was just amazing. But out there in the rest of the world, it's like it was just it was, you know, it's it's interesting that what I was feeling was this connectedness and and loving that and all. But I think there was also there was there was a slot, there was a need that was to have somebody that I just totally admired that was that was you know that was sober too. You know, like Anthony Hopkins is very open about, sure. about it. But I wasn't around Anthony. I mean, Anthony would have been perfect, you know, but anyway, I found these two two guys, you know, Dave Robichaux, you know, but before Dave, Scudder and Scudder. That's James Lee, James Lee Burke. Is that the James Lee Burke? uh, And, and, you know, the, the Matt Scudder novels, it's, it's, I had somebody to hang with. Dude. It was I just, just you know, became, yeah. and the thing is that uh, there's a lot of stuff that that you know that 
you know, what between those two characters, those these two fictitious characters that are not fictitious at all, and I'll fight you over that. They are absolutely real, you know. Matt uh, Scudder is the most real. Uh, I, I I don't want to. I've I've had Larry on the podcast, and we're gonna do it again. But um, you know, he's one of the only people where I wrote a, a note to him when I was like 29 or something, and I'm 54 now, and uh, we ended up meeting up and and really and truly for 30 years now or whatever it is. Uh, close enough have been just, oh no, I was younger. We were just married. I, I, we weren't even married when I first met him. So I was like 25 or 26. We've just known each other for, for, for that long and, and his work remains that important to me. All right, Amy, I'm going to go back to this now. Amy, it was great. I hope that sometime we can all sit down and break bread together. You, you gave me a great gift today, Amy. Thank you. Well, I hope all that stuff we just did is, is, is you know, you're going to roll that and, you know, you, you know, that's, I loved all that. That's all going to be on the podcast. Of course, man. No, Paul, when she started just weeping, I swear to God. And then I had just watched, you know, the documentary. And when you see those people weeping on the documentary, it makes sense. But then when I saw my own wife just fall apart at the table at the mention of the song, uh, I, I realized that. how strange it must be to be you and wonderful though to have done this work then and like you say be so fucked up and but, have it land the way it does on people now but you know something also brian is that that there's jim hansen's in that song and yes. that that jim hansen's in that song kermit is in that song and and those are are to me those are two different energies you know they're, they're yes. I, I, no, not two different energies there's a better way to say it than that I mean, I always joke that if, if I was talking to Frank Oz and Jim and they had Kermit and Piggy with them, there's five of us in the conversation. <laughs> yes. You know, it's like, but but there is there is a this almost a healing sweetness and and calm and uh, and, and about Jim and the way he thought and the, I mean even the, the way he would say no. I mean, it's like Kenny Asher and I just saw, there was a scene in, in the Muppet movie where where the Muppets break down in the middle of the desert. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Kermit walks off and he's talking to himself and it's like I've let everybody down. He's, he's like you know, you did your best, you know. And now I know, I, you know, now they're all they're never gonna. Do, we want to go to be and be rich and famous, blah blah, 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 go to Hollywood and blah blah, do real good. But I've let them down and all. Meanwhile, back at the at the the uh, the web the or the fireside, the website back at the fireside, and there in the desert, Gonzo is who is a landlocked bird. And which I believe we all are, is nice. staring at the sky, you know? Boy, a guy could get lost in that sky, you know? And he sings this song that is as far away from a children's song and yet maybe as dead on for a children's song as you're going to get, which is, you know, the, I've never been there, but I know the way. I'm going to go back there someday. It's, it's probably my favorite song from actually from the, from the Muppet movie. I'm blessed to have written you know, with with Rainbow Connection and all, but but uh, there's something about I'm going to go back there someday. We played it at Jim's funeral shortly thereafter. Way uh, way too. Of course, but, way too. Did 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 you uh, like the? You were such a. As I said, uh, I did always sense this uncomfortableness that you had. Um, but what did you get out of the the part of the whole thing? that incredible sort of white hot fame that you had that thing of being the guy who always had the right wise crack at the right moment. Uh, 
it seems like there was a duality going on because you were also this incredibly sensitive, magical thinking artist. Uh, and yet you're the same guy who'd make the holiday in joke. Yeah. And how did you, I mean, other than I understand you were fucked up, but, but rather than just lean on, on that as an answer, unless that is the only answer, like, how did you think of those varying facets as an artist? Did, did you like the performing as Paul Williams part as much as you liked the writing part? Oh, uh, that's a really good question. I love, you know, uh, Dorothy Parkinson said that, you know, that she loved having written, you know. Yes. I love, you know, to me, the process is just magical. And it's just, uh, and especially if I'm writing with somebody that just blows me away, you know, I, I you know, the, uh, I've been writing a bunch with Gustavo Santaolalla lately, and, and who's an amazing, amazing writer. We just wrote the, the uh, the title song to a movie called uh, Freak Power, you know, which is about about uh, 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 oh God, I'm having an absolute senior moment. Uh, the Gonzo journalist, oh Hunter uh, Tom Hunter Thompson, Hunter Hunter J, Hunter J Thompson, running for uh, for for sheriff in Aspen. Yes, I know all about that story. Amazing story. I'm a big Hunter Thompson guy. So yeah, great. Yeah. Uh, uh, you you have to watch that. I mean, it's all archival footage that's never been found before. Can't wait to watch. Found. It's amazing. So so you know. So when I'm writing with somebody like that, or like you know, Daft Punk. I mean, I'm in my yes, seventh course, and you know, I I want you know, we wind up getting you know, album of the year, and I and I, I joked you know about the fact that that when I was drinking and using, I used to see things that were that were there that that weren't real, and and it was really frightening. Then I got sober and two robots asked me if I wanted to make an album. But to witness these two guys who choose an anonymity, which is yes, that's at a great this point. point in my life, that's really impressive. Right. Because you know, the thing is that it was a different time in the 70s. It was it was, you know, in the late 60s. And, and early 70s, it was like I was this, this little hippie and all. But but that little taste of, of fame took me up to feeling like normal, like one of the guys, you know, you need it. So you you actually needed the endorphin hit of that's what you're saying about Mitchum. Yeah, y- you needed to feel what you felt when you were sitting next to Johnny that actually yeah. hit you in a way. And that relates to to not getting sober yet. I and guess. it's, and it, it got you know, my sense of humor got all sparkly in those moments. It was like, I got oh, all yeah, sparkly, you know, it was yeah. just, uh, I'm, but I'm, but I mean, I said things that, you know, I mean, uh, it's a wonder I didn't get tossed off the show sometimes, you know, some young actress sits there and talks about, she was back with her family and they did a lot of winter cleaning and everything. And I would say, of course, you know, her family's in the amphetamine business or whatever. Yes. And Carson would fall out of his chair, and and Freddie DeCordova, the producer, was just sitting there shaking his head, like you know. And then I'd watch these guys having conversations about whether they needed to cut it out, you know. What? And I just, you know, there was a guy named Herb Pacheco who, you know, basically fed me when I when I had no money. And he he, if you ever saw Phantom of the Paradise, he played my my bodyguard in Phantom. Right. You know, create. You know, he looked like you know you know. Black curly hair. He looked like you know the most dangerous man in the world. He was just the sweetest man. And all. But he, you know, he would all. He loved it when I did something that was just absolutely right on the edge. Of course. Edge. It just and 
And you know, like we were two, you know, we're like, we were a couple teenagers, you know, kind of rolling through all this new terrain. And uh, yeah, there was this ubiquity. There was this ubiquity possible then if you were willing to do all the stuff that you were willing to do. Like, so I have a couple questions that I, there's things, you know, I'm the perfect age to talk to you, right? Because I'm uh, whatever it is, tw- tw- 26 years younger than you. So I was 10, you were 36 in the middle of all this stuff. I mean, you were like right in the prime of doing this shit when I was a kid. So what do you think the magic was of that 90 minute Carson show? Have you thought about what it was that made that such um, a magical possibility of in the interplay? I've always wondered about it. I, I was obsessed with the show, you know, and, and what, but from being, um, on it and being there, what do you think was the thing that made it so magical? I think that, that Carson had, you know, first of all, he was the best at it. I mean, and he was the, the thing that, the, that I didn't do with him is that I think maybe some other people did the same thing is would never, ever talk to him before, you know, like, I love it. it. You know, he came into to, to makeup and I was in makeup, whatever. And he, and he would wave and, and go, and it, it, the, the whole thing was let it be absolutely fresh and, you know, and trust yourself to talk about what, you know, you know, just say what you think and don't, you don't need to edit. You're Paul Williams, you know, you don't right. need to edit. Uh, that, did you not it's do no pre, so you wouldn't do pre-interviews on those shows. You would just show up and talk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the thing, like the first couple of times I, I went in and, and talked to them before and they went, okay, we're, we're fine here. Uh, but it's just, you know, it was just the, the best thing is, is also, you never knew who was going to be there, you know? Sure. And so it felt there, like a, you know, there's, you know, there's Anthony Quinn sitting next to you on the, or Orson Welles, Orson Welles coasted for for Carson one of the one of the things that I cannot find I don't think it exists because they they taped over the tape but when Carson was when 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 Orson Welles subbed for for Johnny Carson he requested three guests he requested myself never saw this and and George Goebel yeah and uh uh uh, oh oh god great great comedian great comedian that did uh Geraldine uh Flip Wilson Flip Wilson, thank you. I mean, yeah, there's a 12 second delay at this point. You're like, you know, <laughs> That's I, hilarious. Remember, I remember yeah. a name like Arthur Honeycutt. You, know, but you I got there. You gave I me have uh, no idea. But I have no you, idea. You, you gave me the character he played. You did great. You gave me the character he played. We got there. So it was the three of you were the three guests. And people who don't know George yeah. Goebbels, he was yeah, you know. hilarious. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, so you, you wind up, you wind up, you know, there with, with people that your entire life. Yeah, just you know, and and you want them to know more than anything how, how much they mean to you, and the way you do that is you. To me, was like you know, I guess you know, try to look unimpressed. These days, I just let myself just gurn out. I mean, the great yes. thing about what we do for a living is you don't have to give up your fan card, so I can just be you know, Brian, I just just be an embarrassment. You know, my wife is like, God, you're really excited about you know, you know, you know the, honey, you've known. Quincy Jones for 50 years. Why do you get like that when he comes in a room? Because it's Quincy Jones. I'm the same, dude. I'm the same way. Like I had, I, I had Rick Rubin on the podcast last week, and you know, we've I've known Rick forever, and and still, sure. I said at the beginning of the thing, I was like, uh, uh, uh Rick, you know, I, I don't want to. I'm not saying that we're friends. And Rick's like, no, of course, of course, yeah, we're, we're friends. What are you? What are you I'm like, well, I, 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 and you know, I find myself like I've been doing this for my, I've been doing this job for 30 years. You know, making movies since I'm. 
29 years old and still I get the same thing that 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 you get and it's beautiful right it's beautiful that we can still be f- fans yeah. and 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 feel that way I have one other geeky question that I want to talk to you about your the place of songwriters in the world but I've always wondered now as someone who makes television, I've always wondered, even as a kid, what it was like on the set of a show like Fantasy Island, not Love Boat so much, but like when you show up for work on something like Fantasy Island, are they ta- what are they taking it seriously? Does everyone know that it's Arch? Do they like what is so Fantasy Island for people who don't know, it was sort of like an anthology show. It was these same two people, but every week you would get a whole new host of characters and this absurd thing. And then somehow it was like the number one show in, in, in the world. Uh, and, and, uh, and Paul was on a number of times doing a number of different things. So, but can you describe that showing up on that kind of a set? Were they writing it as they were going? Like, what no, the yeah, fuck it, was that like, man? Probably a little bit like summer stock, you know? <laughs> like, yes. Okay, you know, good. One show is like, you know, it's like, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of, uh, <laughs> Top ten television, you know, own, own your own your time slot. <laughs> Summer stock. It's just you know, you go in. Okay, what's the deal this time? We want you to come in. You that his <laughs> fantasy is that he's got that he uh, he wants to be. My fantasy w- was that that I wanted to be in a harem. You know, yes. but of course, uh, flip it, and and I'm a, I'm one of a bu- all these muscle men and me and 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 Jane yes. Meadows. Uh, yes. Uh, Harem, you know, or that you know, all of a sudden it's it's myself and Tom Bosley as as uh, I'm Don Quixote and Bosley is is Sancho Panza. Sancho Panza, yeah. Now, see, why is it I can remember something like that that I've never said those words before in my life, and yet I couldn't sit in there talking about Hunter Thompson, who I just wrote a title song for. Well, that's because, the human you know, brain is embracing. But was uh, were people like when you guys would be because uh, you know, like the show that I make, obviously, we like we like you know. We all have a great time making it, but we take it so fucking seriously and we're, you know, it's all planned. So there's no improvisation and it's just planned to the nines before we show up. And I I think it's something like Fantasy Island. And I'm like, were they improvising? Were they just kind of like, you know, or was it all really written and planned and blocked and staged? Yeah, exactly. You know, and of course I was pretty, you know, about half big for all. I mean, I just spent two years with Billy Bob Thorne on Goliath, you know. Yes, great show. And- Oh my God! And to and just to be close to him when he's working. Well, and Nina Arianda, who's just incredible. She was oh on our show, God. and she's oh just the best actor in the world, right? Yeah. I mean, she's just yeah. the best actor you could find. Yeah, I just I was stunning, you know. And to be to be in, in that, you know, I mean, I, I can't on, on set. I can't even hear Billy Bob. You know, it's like, and it, and yet I feel him so intensely. And you know, there there was a there was a scene we were shooting that. And, and I'll scream and yell at him while we're shooting a scene. You know, what the fuck? I can't hear you. You know I wear hearing aids. Speak up. But his name is Billy and as the character. So and it's fine. Oh, so you can do it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, you know, Larry, the, the, you know, so, Larry the, the directing it is going, well, I may use that. I don't know. But. So wait, is the drill the same then? Like when you show up now to do a guest shot as it was back in the Fantasy Island Love Boat days? Is it, or is it basically the same thing or, or did you guys do it differently in the 70s? You know, I, 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 you know, it, it was kind of, you know, I always brought my, you know, the only place that I've ever just gotten blown away excited is walking on a set. 
You know, I uh, started out as an actor. I couldn't. Yes. I, I looked like a kid till you put me next to a real kid, then I looked like a kid with a hangover. So I, huh. yeah. I had, I think, two film, two major films about two years apart, and then I started writing songs on the second one. I just did for my own amusement. Uh, but I was in a movie called The Loved One, played the boy genius in that, and then I did a part in The Chase with Marlon Brando and Robert Redford, and you know, all the whatever like that. So all I ever wanted to do was was walk on on a I'd walk on a set and it, it took me immediately back to being you know 11 years old whatever and or 12 or 13 having come back from the movies and start acting out what I saw you know yeah of course and and can you tell that story of how you became because I find it remarkable and so many people plan and and their ambition drives them and they they think they can calculate these careers yeah. But it seems to me that the songwriting piece of your career in the beginning had very little calculation. Could you just talk about how you end up writing the Carpenter's song and how you decide to become a songwriter? Because I've read about it and it's fascinating, but I'd love people to quickly hear it. Well, I was trying to make it as an actor and, and uh, you know, and, and after my dad, I, I was one of those guys that sang Danny Boy for my dad when, when I was a kid. My dad died, and all of a sudden, I felt very disconnected. The music thing was gone. What I wanted to do was, uh, you know, I've been shipped off to live with an aunt and uncle, lost at that point my whole family. Uh, so I want to be somebody else. I mean, a good therapist had fun with that for a few years. You sure. Know, that, that you want to be an actor, you know, and I, I always joked that I felt you know, I, I, you know, I felt like Montgomery Cliff, but I looked like Haley Mills. I couldn't, I couldn't <laughs> get a job. References that people these days probably, who is he talking about, Montgomery Cliff? They well, know who Montgomery Cliff is if they're listening they to that, Montgomery so they'll Cliff. find out. No, Haley. Well, who knows? At any rate, but but the point is that, that I, I couldn't make a living as an actor. I was trying, but when I was on the set of The Chase, I was sharing a, a, a dressing room with a kid named Mark Seaton. George Seaton's son, he had a beautiful Martin guitar. I picked it up and he yelled at me, he barked at me, don't put that, it's a Martin guitar. It's like, no, I said, okay. So I went out and I bought a little one of my own. I painted it so it would be look really nice and new. I had no idea what that would do to the- Oh my I, gosh, that's I, hilarious. I, I put flowers on it. You yeah, know, like, like people did, yeah. It was 1965 or something, 65. Or no, 60, yeah, 65. So- I've got this thing I'm trying to figure out. I didn't know an E was an E or an A was an A. I find know that if I held my fingers over certain things and it sounded pretty, you know, it's then maybe I got a little book or some chords, or whatever, but I'm sitting on the, the step of my, my, my trailer that, that I shared with Mark as little, you know, little tiny little trailer. You know, and we're watching him shoot a scene where we're out at the Malibu ranch and we're shooting a scene where Robert Redford, an escaped convict, is hiding in a junkyard that us kids have just set fire to. And I just uh, sitting there watching Brando at work and all. I mean, it's like heaven. It's absolutely heaven. Yes. And uh, I just got my, just to amuse myself. I'm sitting on the step and I go, Bubba, Bubba, Bubba. His character was named Bubba. Bubba, come out wherever you are. Or we're going to come in and get you. Or we're going to go. And Robert Duvall is walking by and he said, what, what is that? And I said, it's my new guitar. And he said, no, no, not the guitar. What, what were you just singing? I said, I just made it up. And he said, show me. I went, Bubba, 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 come over. So he come with me. He walks me over to Arthur Penn, who is a serious, yes. amazing director, you know, coming off Miracle Worker, right? And he says, show him. I said, it's a guitar. I mean, you know, he, uh, not the guitar. The show song. him what you were singing. And I went, Bubba, Bubba, Bubba. And Arthur Penn went, 
stand over here. No, get up in the get over here by the fence. And then, then we shot we shot it with me just playing the guitar. And then he put me in the back of the of the uh, the hot rod with the other three teenagers. And I've got blah 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 blah. Come out. It's in the movie. It's yeah, it's just incredible. Hal Ashby's wife, Joan Ashby, uh, said to me one time. I told her that story, and actually, no, I take it back. I told her another story where I almost drowned trying to swim across to a boat to get steel alcohol. She said, that's a billboard. Watch for billboards in your life. That was telling you that you're going to, you're going to become an alcoholic and you have to watch alcohol. And then later I realized later on, but, but talk about a real billboard. I make up four chords and, and two lines and it winds up in a, in a huge blockbuster movie. The universe is saying, you know what? You need to pay a little attention to your, where your abilities are. I think you may have a future. And in, in two years later, I started writing songs. Not right away, but two years later. When you wrote Rainy Days and Mondays, yeah. did you, and you wrote that for a commercial? Is it true you wrote that for a commercial? No, no. We've only just begun with for a Okay, commercial. we only just begun with for a commercial. When, when, and, and, but that was the first, was that the first hit that you had? We've only the, just begun. Well, I, I, right before that, uh, you know, I'd, I'd written a couple of songs with a guy named Biff Rose, and, and Biff had, had written a song that had started a song called Fill Your Heart, which which I wrote with him and wrote a couple others. He went to AM Records and wound up getting a deal as, as a staff writer and mentioned that a couple of those songs I had written the lyrics to. I go in, all of a sudden, I've got a deal there. Fill Your Heart, incidentally, was recorded and was the B side of Tiptoe Through the Tulips by. Tiny, tiny Tim. Tim, and I'm like, I, I, but I'm, I'm, I'm rock and roll. I'm black leather, white light, you know, and which is right. this was with, <laughs> I'm, I'm anything but that at all. And I wanted somebody to, you know, I said, I want, I want some rock and roll. I want, I love Delaney and Bonnie and friends. I want, you know, I'm, I yeah. love Leon Russell. I want to be, you know, writing stuff like that, which is not who I was at that time. Maybe a little closer sometimes now, but, but. Anyway, that song was later on recorded by, by David Bowie on the Hunky Dory album. Incredible, you know, yeah. Boom. So I wind up places that I have n nothing to do with getting me there. They are just gifts. That That's an absolute gift. But with this thing with, with, with Biff and having going in there, all of a sudden I wind up at A&M at a, at a Records and they're looking for a lyricist for a guy named Roger Nichols. Yes. Roger, and the first, we, we're just writing every day and we're getting cuts constantly but no hits no no hits at all uh no singles and then we start getting a little bit of action and everything we had a monkey's uh, single it was the someday man they turn it over play the other side so uh i wound up writing with roger nichols we had one hit we had out in the country with three dog night uh but what happens along the way is that, you know, I mean, Roger and I wrote every day and Roger would play da da dee da dee da do da da And I would write talking to myself and feeling old. Uh, we, you know, he, he would not give me an extra note. He said, you don't need an extra note. Do you like the music the way it is? I'd go, yeah, it's great. He'd go, then you can write words that match the music. So, so that defined the meter in a way. Yeah. Defined, yeah, exactly. So the meter of the words, you know. But so along the way, though, the one that's, that started out as a bank commercial is, is Tony Asher, who is a great lyricist. He wrote God Only Knows for the Beach Boys. Yes. I've been hired to do a commercial. And, uh, and he broke his legs, or no, broke his hand skiing. So he couldn't do it. And he said, uh, 
uh, you, you know, I've recommended you and Paul. And I'm like, I don't want to write a commercial. I don't, I don't want to write. I'm a rock and roll guy. A rock and roll guy. Exactly. And uh, Roger said, well, there's a there's a creative fee. I said, let's write this bank commercial, you know. And just in an afternoon wrote, you know, wrote, you know, there's a young couple getting married you know, they're, they're at their ceremony. We've only just begun to live there. The, they're getting, getting married, white lace and promises, just everything kind of hit where the scenes were going to be. And I sang it in the commercial and uh, Roger got a phone call from, uh, from Richard Carpenter in the middle of the night, I think it was. And, and Richard said, Is, I just heard Paul singing did you guys write that? Yeah, yeah. Is there a full song? Yeah. We actually finished it thinking maybe it's an album cut. Number one album at the time is in Agata De Vida, so it's not going to be sure. a hit song. It's not going to be a hit song until an angel sang it. And then, boom, it went through the roof. That was our first huge For hit. people who don't know, when Agata De Vida, Moby Graves, an 18 and a half minute, very uh, opposite of We've Only Just Begun. Yeah. In Agata. Um and uh, and then it becomes this number one, and you've really you've really arrived, Paul. What you're doing now is uh, can you talk about the state of this? And we'll finish this up. But can can you talk about the state of the songwriter now, and what what, you, what you're doing with ASCAP, and and what it is that ASCAP, which is the songwriters uh, collective, or the, yeah, yeah, ASCAP is a performing rights organization. When music is played, you know, there's royalty involved. You know, there's a performance royalty. The the two largest. Uh, PROs in the United States or BMI and, and ASCAP. ASCAP was created in, in uh, 1914. So, when, so when, when music is played either in a restaurant or on television or in, you know anywhere that music is performed, the, there is a performance role which is, is collected by the, the publisher and the writer. Uh, I've been a member of ASCAP since 1972. They, they have been putting food on my table and gas in my car paying for my kids' schooling, you know, for most of my adult life. An amazing organization. And as a collective, when you think about it, if I write a song, I write We've Only Just Begun, we're out in the country and it's a hit. I can't go out and figure out who all is playing out in the country and how much money they owe me and collect it. That's what ASCAP does. You know, ASCAP licenses the songs. It's a membership organization, a non-for-profit, so that that uh, after we take, you know, the... the, the uh, you know, the cost of operating you know, uh, ASCAP out, every penny goes right away to the writers. And I'm talking about, you know, uh, uh, an organization that is just, is, is, it's the mothership. It's just remarkable. There's a woman, a woman named Beth Matthews is the CEO on the hood ornament. I'm the president and chairman of the board for the last, this is the, my 12th year, my, my sixth term. Are you concerned about the, uh, I was talking to some songwriters because it's my it's my hobby. I, I write songs, but I do it really seriously with people in Nashville. And I've got I, I got a cut last year and I'm way I, I love doing it. But I talk to songwriters who are great master songwriters like you. Uh, and they talk about how how the income of a songwriter now who has it used to be if you wrote those album cuts and the album was successful, you were able to have a decent life for yourself as a professional songwriter. Yeah. And that's getting much more difficult for, for people now. And uh, so can you just talk about the, the, the position the songwriter finds themselves in and how you're, what you think ought to happen? Well, as, as the way we listen to music has changed, the way the songwriters, you know, and what, what we're paid has diminished. And, and it's, 
it's, you know, part of a huge part of what we do at ASCAP is beyond the fact that we, you know, we collect your royalties and you make sure you get them right away. And we go out, we make the deals with Spotify and the, all the people that are using the music yeah. radio as an industry, not, not individual stations, but as that in radio in, industry and the like. But w- what happened is there was that period after, after Napster, when we finally got into the point where we were getting paid for streaming and it was so, so, uh, uh so diminished as far as actual value of, of, of the work and all. So, you know, we spent a, a lot of time for the organ with a, a, a bill called the Songwriter Equity Act, trying to get that passed that was going to make a difference for the way songwriters are paid. It never made it to the floor, but the same people reached for, combined it with a couple other bills called it the Music Modernization Act, and it passed. During Trump's uh, during Trump's administration, it passed, and and basically it was a collection of, of two or three bills, one including the, the classics acts to make sure that somebody, you know, that was that with music was being played from pre nineteen seventy two, they could still get a performance royalty and all. Uh, we operate under a consent decree that that uh, that was from back in nineteen forty one when basically at that time ASCAP was like a, a monopoly. So you know this this consent decree defines the ways that with the rules that we operate under to, uh, you know, to collect me for, you know, for our, our, our writer, publisher members, our composers, authors, writers, all uh, the, the thing is that, that the, 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 there's a whole mechanical side of what you're paid. You know, when you used to buy a record, you know, where you get paid for the performance or you get paid for the, the vinyl, of course, you know, there's there is there is again a, a in in well. Of in course, you understand this put me through college too because my dad is a music publisher, right? So well, this then, is well, then you get this stuff and all. So no, but the fact the fact is that that it's improving. It's improving, uh, uh, not as fast and as 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 totally as we'd like it to, but it's getting better and better. And I I think the the fact is that you know we just you know, we have. The, the one thing we all agree on is that w- if there was no songwriters, if there were, were no songs, there would be no, if there was no music, there would be no music industry. And I'll go further. If there were no songs, you wouldn't have those moments. Like my wife, uh, yeah. who's kept it together for the four years of the Trump presidency. And as I say, just uh, finally had her release because I said your name in the song you wrote. And that magic wouldn't exist if songwriters weren't compensated for what they do, right? Well, yeah, exactly. You know, the, the, and, and as I say, it's getting better. It's going, it's going to keep getting better. Good. Uh, the, uh, it's the greatest honor I ever had in my life, you know, it is, is to, to be a part of it. We have over 800,000 members to ASCAP and, and I came from a town of 100,000 people, which was Albuquerque, New Mexico. So I have, there's a, a, a huge responsibility there. And the, the, for me, the, the magic, is going to DC and, and walk in the hall. I mean, to watch this, you know, this attack on, on the Capitol building. When I, you know, when I know that that how much life changes when myself and and other songwriters and publishers go and we walk in. I walk into a guy's office and I say hi. My name is Paul. I'm an, uh, I'm a songwriter and, and I'm president and chairman of ASCAP. And the guy says, "You're little Enos from Smoking the Bandit." And I love that movie. What can I do for you? And then he turns around and actually does it. Uh, so I, I love the chance to go out and, and, and talk about what we do and, and how we, we do need to be taken care of. You know, we need that you, you, we, we need to make sure that, you know, that, 
There's a lot of studios that got sold. There's a lot of houses that got sold. There's a lot of un- downsizing that has been necessary, you know, because of the way the way that that yes. the, the whole industry has responded. But as as you know, I'm I am very Jiminy Cricket about this whole deal, and I think that that as long as we can make sure that the songwriter is considered seriously and first in the deal. You know, and as long as we have somebody, you know, like the staff at ASCAP and the board, the board of directors, 12 publishers and 12 writers that, you know, that are deeply, deeply into the weeds on making sure that this does get better. And it has gotten way, 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 way better. Good. And, I'm glad and, to hear that because you know, I meet these songwriters who work so hard and write every day. And, and I see the how much there's always been instability in it, but I see. Uh, the fear that the the business itself has an instability that 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 didn't used to be there. So I'm glad to hear the that there's. I will say that the work is nowhere near being done. When I say things have gotten better, they've gotten better from you know. From, you know, it's like, you know, if you're if you're in a room and and there's been a big flood and all of a sudden the the water is all the way up to the ce- the ceiling and the water comes down far enough for you to get your nose and your mouth above the water it's that's a great improvement but it's nowhere to get it's nowhere near having a dry living room again so we have we you know we're headed for a dry living room that may take a little while but we're we're able to breathe right now dude you're so talented it's crazy i mean you just even the way you just spin words in when you're just talking is so much fun I, I i'm i'm so honored to get to talk to you this way i mean uh you know, I started out with that evergreen story because you've just been a presence in my life since I was a little boy, as for so many people my age, and you're a remarkable artist, Paul, and uh, thank you for taking the time to do this. Uh, I really appreciate it. As enjoyable as any hour I've ever spent talking about myself, and, and you know, that's a, a, you know, it's a pretty low bar there. It's that's hilarious. In fact, is that I will I, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. Not only what you what you shared and, and the like, but also that Amy was was able to uh, to join us for a little while. Yeah, there. no, that was really special for me too to have her be able to do that. Folks, you can find me on Twitter at Brian Koppelman or Instagram. You can email me the moment BK at gmail.com. Are you online, Paul? Do you do Twitter or Instagram? I at at, at uh, I'm Paulie Lama two on Instagram. And okay. my Twitter is at the letter I, the letter M, Paul Williams. Uh, Great. Uh, uh, perfect. Well, I'll follow you today if I don't already so that we can be in touch. We will uh, see you next week. The great Paul Williams, everybody. Paul.